Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Seth Magaziner, Rhode Island's new congressman, says for many, the American dream has been just that, a dream. He's determined to help change that. People are working harder and harder and having a tougher time paying their bills and keeping up. We've got to bring back manufacturing jobs. We've got to lower the cost of health care, lower the cost of uh, energy. Uh, we've got to improve public education so that everybody can send their kid to a great school. To me, skating is freedom and joy and passion. It's everything under the sun. It feels like flying. And when you land with just as much speed as you had going in, it's the best feeling in the world. First time, really, uh, Providence has a black professional baseball team in 31. Their home field is Kinsley, and they pack Kinsley, and they showcase uh, some of the best uh, baseball talent, period, uh, black or white. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. Representative Seth Magaziner is just weeks into his first term, but soon will be the senior congressman from Rhode Island. That jump in line, of course, comes as Representative David Cicilline made a surprise announcement that he's stepping down this May. Magaziner has his work cut out for him as he joins a bitterly divided Congress. But he told us recently that he's up to the challenge and inspired by generations of his family, both old and new. Congratulations. You are now members of the 118th Congress. Representative Seth Magaziner joined a history-making Congress before he even took the oath of office, but not for the reasons he had hoped for. I was not expecting to be sworn in at 2 a.m. on a Saturday morning, but... Um, you know, it just shows that under the Republican leadership in the House, unfortunately, there's a lot of chaos and division. Congress finally has a new House Speaker. Kevin McCarthy won early this morning, putting an end to days of raucous debate. Magaziner says the raucous debate that played out on the House floor throughout 15 rounds of voting likely foreshadows what the next two years will look like on Capitol Hill. Let me give you... Contact my office. President Biden's State of the Union may have offered a glimpse of that, too. But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Look. There's so much disarray on the Republican side of the House that in order to consolidate his support for the speakership, Kevin McCarthy had to... Uh, essentially give the keys of the House over to the most radical members of his party. The January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol highlighted the polarization within the country. As a member of the Homeland Security Committee, Magaziner says stopping domestic terrorism is a top priority. Well, first, we have to make sure that law enforcement have the tools and the encouragement and the support of Congress to continue to combat extremist groups, whatever their ideologies may be, whether it's far right, far left, or something else. The congressman says another major threat facing national security is the rise of authoritarianism around the world. 
He points to leaders like Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban, the former president of Brazil Jair Bolsonaro, and Russian President Vladimir Putin. It's one of the reasons why Magaziner says it's critical that the United States continue providing aid to Ukraine. The war recently reached its one-year mark. The biggest risk that we have is that Ukraine falls to Vladimir Putin and that Putin doesn't stop there. So I've been clear from the beginning, we should not commit U.S. troops to the war in Ukraine. This is the Ukrainians' war to fight, and they know that. But military su uh, supplies, humanitarian aid, intelligence support, we should continue to provide. Is there any reason you can think that you would support having U.S. troops get involved in the war in Ukraine? I think that's a, an absolute last resort. Uh, but Russia needs to know if they were to attack U.S. military facilities in Europe, or our NATO allies, there will be severe consequences. I rise today to offer my first general remarks on the floor of the United States House of Representatives. During his speech, Magaziner talked about his two grandfathers, veterans and working class men who came of age during the Depression. One was a steel worker, the other a bookkeeper. Neither of them worked very glamorous jobs, but with a lot of hard work and a little help from the GI Bill, these two children of immigrants were able to buy houses for their families, put their kids through school, and earn a ticket to the middle class. That's the way it's supposed to work in this country. The first speech that you recently gave on the House floor, you alluded to both of your grandfathers, and you talked about how they were able to accomplish the American dream. I think if you ask most middle-class Americans, they'll tell you the American dream is becoming harder and harder to attain. Absolutely, and that's why I'm doing this. I mean. You're right. People are working harder and harder and having a tougher time paying their bills and keeping up. We've got to bring back manufacturing jobs. We've got to lower the cost of health care, lower the cost of uh, energy. Uh, we've got to improve public education so that everybody can send their kid to a great school. Magaziner splits his time between Rhode Island and Washington, D.C. Nine or ten days a month in D.C. and the rest of the time here. He looks forward to being home with his wife, Julia, and their 16-month-old son, Max. I was able to bring Max, my son, onto the floor of the house with me, which was a really special uh, experience. He uh, made a lot of friends with uh, with. Uh, members of Congress from around the country, and it was it was a very special day. Magaziner joined the Congressional Dads Caucus. He wants to advocate for issues like paid family leave, universal preschool, and child care funding. Particularly for my generation, the millennial generation that's coming up, uh, I think there's rightfully uh, an expectation in our generation that uh, fathers play uh, an equal role in raising children as as uh, mothers and advocating for things like childcare and paid leave and preschool uh, shouldn't just be left to women members of Congress. Congratulations. Thank you so much. The 39-year-old Democrat recently welcomed his constituents to his new office in Warwick, including former Congressman Jim Langevin. What I really want to talk about for just a moment today is the important work that's going to be happening in this office. Magaziner may be new to Congress, but Rhode Island's former state treasurer has been around politics his whole life. His father, Ira Magaziner, was a policy advisor under President Bill Clinton. The dinner table conversations when I was a kid were terrific. They were mostly about policy, less so about politics. It was more 
you know, how do we make schools better? How do we uh, make healthcare better? How do we make sure that everyone has opportunity regardless of their race or religion? It sounds wonky and it sounds nerdy, but that's, that's the stuff we talked about when I was a kid and that left a real mark on me. Did that start to pique your interest in pursuing a career in politics? I always knew I wanted to do some kind of service. I didn't necessarily think that I would run for office one day until I was well into adulthood. Magaziner spent two years teaching elementary school students in Louisiana through Teach for America shortly after Hurricane Katrina. It was during that time that he says he decided he wanted to run for public office. I wanted to be part of fixing these structural things that were holding back working people. I mean, these kids, you know, most of their parents worked hard, worked two or three jobs and just couldn't break out uh, and, and of this cycle of poverty. One way out of this cycle, says Magaziner, is to bring more manufacturing jobs to the United States. It would also reduce dependency on other countries. You know, remember when the pandemic first came and there were a lot of empty shelves? You know, you couldn't get hand sanitizer, you couldn't get toilet paper, you couldn't get all kinds of stuff. That, I think, was a wake-up call that we need to make more stuff in the United States again instead of relying on places like China. You have some ambitious ideas. How do you hope to accomplish that, given that you're in the minority party and you're a freshman legislator? One of the um, concessions that Kevin McCarthy made in order to become speaker was agreeing to something called a discharge petition. Under a discharge petition, 218 members of the House can sign a letter saying we want a bill to be voted on by the full House and he is required to allow that vote to occur. What that means practically is that we only need to find five Republicans to join with the Democrats to force a bill to the floor for a vote on almost any issue. And Magaziner says he doesn't have to look far for encouragement. Being a new dad, it's motivating. I mean, that's why I'm doing this. That's why I'm working so hard in Congress to fight for working people is because I want Max and all children to have a future where everyone who's willing to work hard can do the right thing, where every kid can go to a good school, where everyone can retire in dignity, where we've turned the page on climate change and gun violence. Looking at him when he wakes up in the morning is a reminder of why I do this work. Up next, Olympic figure skating medalist Vincent Joe is spending a lot of time in Rhode Island seeking something more than a high score from the judges. Joe is a full-time student at Brown University following a tumultuous year at the 2022 Olympic Games. It was filled with drama that has yet to be resolved. Tonight, Joe shares with us some of the fortunes and fates of a life on skates. There's always something new to be discovered every time you step out on the ice. In skating, we are doing things that are, you know, on the edge of what's possible physically for humans. 22-year-old Olympic figure skater Vincent Joe has been on the cutting edge of his sport since childhood. He was the first to successfully land one of the most difficult jumps, a quadruple Lutz at the 2018 Olympics. We recently caught up with him at Brown's Meehan Auditorium, where he makes it all look so easy. 
what you don't see is the hours and hours of pure physical training that we're doing. It takes years and diligence and, and hard work to make just three or four minutes out there in front of the sparkling lights look perfect. Joe began seeking perfection as a five-year-old boy growing up as a first-generation Chinese-American in California. He quickly began compiling top awards. I was this fearless kid who would, who would stack tables on top of tables and chairs on top of those tables and then boxes on top of those chairs to get to the Lego box at the top of the bookshelf. It's kind of the same thing later on. I'm stacking tools I have on top of one, on top of each other to try and build a great foundation so I can reach the ultimate dream one day. Joe came in sixth at the 2018 Olympics. In 2022 in Beijing, he was a silver medalist in the team event. The moment I realized I was going to be an Olympic medalist was emotional and fulfilling in a way that's difficult to put into words. Something that I sacrificed 17 years of my life for is finally being fulfilled and all that time, all the hardships and the struggles and, and all the small victories along the way. But taking silver would turn into a hollow victory, tarnished by another team's substance use. The Russian doping scandal remains the biggest topic of conversation. It's now been confirmed that Camilla Valieva tested positive for a banned substance before the games started. After the team event, it was discovered that 16-year-old Russian skater Camilla Valieva tested positive for a banned drug. Russia won gold, but the Court of Arbitration for Sport is still deciding the case. A year later, there's been no ceremony and athletes have no medals, just empty boxes. It feels like a slap in the face. It's, it's, a, it's not just a slap in the face to me, it's, it's an insult to the meaning of sport and to the meaning of Olympics. The, the Olympics are the pinnacle, of, the pinnacle of sport, fair sport, clean sport, a great event that symbolizes unity and, and peace. And to have, to have, you know, cheaters, to compete with people who dope, it's, it's an insult to all the hard work that we've put in invalidates all of that. If Russia is disqualified in the illegal substance review, Team USA will move to the top of the podium and take the gold medal, something Joe says would help bring the sport back to a level playing field. It would feel like a step in the right direction in terms of the fight for clean sport. The doping controversy is not the only heartache Joe had to face at the Olympics. Hey everyone. I have no idea how to start off this video properly, so I'm just going to get started. The night before he was to skate in the men's competition, he tested positive for COVID. I will have to withdraw from the individual event. That spiraled into a dark time for him. Joe says he didn't want to go to the world championships after the Olympics and considered a complete halt to skating. It was devastating for me. It was like, it was like losing it was like losing a loved one. As soon as I got home from Beijing, then it actually hit me. Like, that's when the full weight of what had happened actually settled in. And then I just felt like, I just, 
felt like an empty shell. Like there was this, this vast chasm with nothing inside me. I, you know, I had no, no motivation to, uh, to skate. At one point, my mom told me that it was okay to withdraw from worlds. It was okay to give up. And, and that's something that I've never heard come out of her mouth because she's always been that, you know, that tough love, like, like iron-willed mother who's drilled, who's drilled perseverance and grit and you know, never giving up into me since I was a kid. And that kind of made me rethink it a little, you know? Would you be able to live the rest of your life knowing that you allowed yourself to give up in the most critical moment? And he didn't. Joe, with very little time for training, competed at the Worlds in France, making a comeback from COVID and winning bronze. I don't really believe in magic or all that, but it was like magic. It was highly emotional. It was basically the the victory that I could that I didn't get the chance to achieve at the Olympics. Joe is now attending Brown University, majoring in economics and business. It's like starting over all again and, and having to be a beginner. The motto is in practice, beat yourself. In competition, be yourself. So I just have to put myself into this completely different mindset of accepting that I'm a beginner and accepting that I have so much to learn. And as far as his future in skating, Joe says he's conflicted about competing in the 2026 Olympics. I have three more years here at Brown. Um, I'll be studying full-time, and you can't study full-time and train full-time. Um, there aren't 48 hours in a day. But there is a short window after that where if I was extremely motivated to make a comeback, and if I saw an opportunity, then um, then it's possible. For those of us who will never know what it's like to be out on the ice with the grace and the speed and the strength, is it possible for you to describe that sensation? To me, skating is freedom and joy and passion encapsulated into one activity that can, that can be so simple yet so complex so difficult yet so rewarding. It's, it's everything under the sun. It feels like flying. And when you land with just as much speed as you had going in, it's the best feeling in the world. Finally tonight, on a warm summer day back in July of 2021, contributing producer and editor Dorothy Dickey asked Rhode Island artist April Brown to take us on a tour of Kinsley Field, home of the Providence Colored Giants. The team played integrated baseball years before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in the major leagues in 1947. So here we are at Kinsley and Acorn Street. Imagine in 1919, this was a huge field. What was this field used for back then? So this was the place where community could come and see fireworks and see boxing, soccer, and football. And what about baseball? In the 1920s, this location was where you could see amateur and professional baseball events. This was the location you could see black teams playing against white teams. And in 1931, this became the home field of the Providence Colored Giants, Rhode Island's first professional black baseball team. 
Hensley Park was uh, built in the early 1920s. The geographic significance really rests with an old trope in sports history, which is there's a lot of ballparks which are built on railroad property, uh, large pieces of property which uh, railroads no longer use, and they become ball fields. Hensley Park is probably synonymous with Rhode Island's uh, featured minor league baseball team, the Grays. And really the park is built with the Grays in mind. And that's where you see incredible professional teams coming in and out. Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig played there in an exhibition game. Kinsley Park had always been an enclosed stadium, which was what made it so special. Professional teams or semi-professional teams almost exclusively sought out uh, stadiums where people had to pay to enter. Daniel Whitehead, or Big Dan Whitehead, is oftentimes referred to as the father of black baseball uh, in Rhode Island. Uh, he's referred to that because in 1905, he establishes the original Providence Colored Giants. In 1908, he incorporates the team and it becomes Rhode Island's first money-making African-American team. Arthur Daddy Black uh, comes to Rhode Island in the early 1880s from uh, South Carolina. He becomes involved in what was then called the Numbers. This is as early as 1924. The numbers racket was an illegal gambling scheme based on lottery numbers, and he's incredibly successful at that. So that by the early 1930s, he is the numbers king of Rhode Island. So he has a significant amount uh, of income. One of the things that Arthur Black became involved in very early, in fact, as early as 1924, is supporting African-American baseball teams. Uh, and then in 1931, full owner of the Providence Colored Giants. Arthur Black was very much interested in creating a professional team with professional players. In 1931, there are players who are scrambling for contracts. The professional Negro Leagues, as they were called back then, uh, went under uh, because of the Great Depression and because of the death of uh, Rube Foster, who had organized the league back in 1920. Arthur Daddy Black is able to sign some of the most incredible black baseball talent along the East Coast to play up in Providence, again, because he can promise them a weekly check. And those payments, from what I gather, uh, were pretty good. And for the first time, really, uh, Providence has a black professional baseball team in 31. Their home field is Kinsley, and they pack Kinsley, and they showcase uh, some of the best uh, baseball talent, period, uh, black or white. One of the most uh, talented players that Arthur Black was able to sign for the Providence Color Giants was Oliver Marcel. Marcel had established himself as the premier third baseman in black baseball. I mean, to the point where uh, in 2006, he was shortlisted for induction into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. But one of the interesting things about African-American baseball in Rhode Island during this time is the way in which African-Americans negotiated uh, segregation or the racial barrier. In baseball, you see uh, integration occurring uh, much sooner than you see it occurring in other walks of life. The white teams were happy to have the black team because the black team was always a draw. People came to see uh, the incredible uh, black talent. It also opened up a fan base to African-American fans. Folks would go to church and then they would come back from church and they would go right to the game. Sometimes wouldn't even change out of their Sunday clothes. It was a wonderful sort of social and cultural event for the community. When we're talking about the 1920s, baseball and money sort of go hand in hand, and integration and money go hand in hand. So 
essentially what happens in 1931 is, is that Daddy Black's professional team doesn't do as well as he had expected. In fact, he has a major disappointment at the Polo Grounds in New York when his team doesn't do all that well against Bill Bojangles' team, the Harlem Stars, which would later become the New York Black Yankees. And Arthur Black walks away from that team in 31, and Dan Whitehead uh, comes in to take over the Providence Color Giants in 1932. Arthur Black was very much in favor of a, of a contract in which players were paid uh, regularly. Daniel Whitehead had always agreed that the players should split the gate. And when Daniel Whitehead informs the players that they're no longer getting a regular paycheck as they did under Daddy Black, in fact, they're gonna to have to split the gate, the players mutiny, they refuse to play. And as a result of that, the team falls apart. You know, the fans want their money back. For Black, you know, the, the game was important, but the game was a business opportunity. But for Whitehead, uh, that was his life. You know, Whitehead was a player. You know, Whitehead, back in 1905, uh, shared time in, on first base or right field and uh, very close to his players. Very different sort of relationship than the business relationship that Black had. So when the players mutiny in 32, Whitehead walks away from the game uh, and dies a year later pretty much brokenhearted, really, in a, uh, in a boarding house, penniless, separated from the game that I think he loved so much. And in 1932, prohibition is coming to an end and, and money streams for organized crime are drying up. And as a result of that, people are looking to uh, take over territories and Black is murdered for his territory. Whitehead passes, Daddy Black is murdered and Kinsley Park, you know, this uh, sacred ground is uh, torn down and it all ends by the early 1930s. You know, sports is oftentimes an avenue which can not just mirror what's going on in the broader society, but can also change what's going on in the broader society. Rhode Island does experience integration, at least in baseball, uh, a lot sooner or a lot quicker than its neighboring states. Baseball has always been a local game enjoyed by local fans. As much as integration is needed and desired and, and fought for, it's bittersweet because uh, all black baseball games on a Sunday afternoon uh, had meant so much to the community. That celebratory event and the men who lived in those communities and played that local game no longer existed. But Kinsley Park was the place where they showcased their talent. And that's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform. Thank you and good night.